Get out the team spirit, folks. It's time for another episode of Turntables and Tea. I'm Charlie. And I'm Corey. And this week, because Corey chose it, we are discussing Nirvana's 1991 album, Nevermind, an album most people have heard of, I'm sure, at least. One of the most famous albums in history. Because you picked this album, would you mind giving us some background on uh, this album and kind of like what it was like at the time of its release? I'm curious because I wasn't there and I'm not quite getting it, honestly. So I'd like to hear it from someone who was there. So this was Nirvana's second studio album. Uh, They released it on September 24th, 1991 uh, under DGC Records. Um, It was their first, this was their big boy major label deal. And it was also, and we'll get into, or we might as well just talk about it now. So they had just lost a drummer. They had started recording this album under the name of Sheep. Kurt Cobain lost his voice during tour. They stopped the tour and then they lost their drummer. And they went to see a band called, oh man, what was Scream. Scream. How can I forget Scream? They went to see Scream and there's Grohl jamming away like we know he can. And Scream ends up breaking up some universal beautiness and Grohl calls them and says, let me jump on this. And the rest is rock and roll history. Um, So, yeah, it was the first one with Grohl. It was the first one under a major label. They recorded it out in Sound City Studios, California. Finished it up in Smart Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. Or or the mastering was was, uh, at the Mastering Lab in Hollywood, California. So they were all over the place. It went all over the board as far as at this time. You want to talk about this time. 91, the start of this movement, the Seattle Sound. Long story short, it was drugs, sex, and rock and roll. And a lot of the rock and roll literally just talked about drugs and sex. So here comes this album, really under the radar, and it's talking about all types of stuff. It's wild how the universe does this, but I didn't pick this album because of what it talked about. But it's so very close to covering the same plight of the artists that we have become accustomed to on a lot of the albums that we have gone through here. Um, you know, we, we talk about trouble, love, we talk about, you know, sexism, the whole nine, all the way across the board. And really a lot of this, people didn't even know it was going down because when this album was released, there were no liner notes. I still sang 90% of these songs wrong. And I always have. I did. This is literally the first time ever that I've looked at the lyrics while I was listening uh, throughout this last week. And I can't tell you, it's almost every song that I've sang completely wrong my whole entire life. (laughs) It's glorious. And we used to have conversations about this back in the day. And Kurt Cobain actually had a quote about this back in the day. Um, He couldn't understand why all the reporters wanted to do this Freudian breakdown of of what his lyrics meant and because they didn't have the lyrics in front of them he was like 90 percent of them are tra- transcribing them wrong anyway so it was definitely a new a new place for this this grunge movement or the start of this alternative movement to come from and and that's the album we got here today yep and uh from my research, I found some other pretty interesting things about it. So the album was produced by a guy named Butch Vig. He helped the band polish their sound up a bit. That needed to be done for a major label. And uh, 
he pushed them hard, not always to Kurt Cobain's pleasure, but he pushed them hard. And uh, once the final mix was done, the band actually was not happy with it. And so they hired a guy named Andy Wallace to mix it. He had just uh, worked on the previous Slayer album, Seasons in the Abyss. So they thought, this guy's heavy. He knows what he's doing. And so they did that, and they were all very pleased with it. Initially, at least. Kurt Cobain later lambasted it and said it sounded candy-ass, but that's a whole different thing. Uh, yeah, we'll be discussing it, throughout this. Yeah, most definitely, because that was that was a little bit of his character, but go on. Spoiler alert, not a character I'm too fond of. I'm going to say that right now, because be prepared, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, he, I am, he's a polarizing dude. I am not happy with this guy after this, let me tell you. But we're not there yet. Not everybody liked him, but a lot of people did like him because this album slowly but surely got a release and it wasn't immediately the biggest thing, but soon enough, MTV picked up the video for the lead single. People loved it and it just exploded from there. And in early 1992, this album went to number one on the Billboard 200. And the week before the number one album was by Michael Jackson, the King of Pop, Dangerous was knocked off of the top spot. It went down to number five, actually. Several other albums were ahead of it that week, but never mind, top the charts. And it was a force to be reckoned with throughout the year. I think today, oftentimes, its commercial success is a bit overstated, as if this was the dominant thing it really wasn't quite on the year-end charts this was it was in the top three selling albums of the year it was number three number one was garth brooks and number two was michael jackson so the commercial aspect is a bit overstated but it was very different and this album has sold over 30 million copies worldwide over 10 million in the u.s so a very successful album yeah, that video we were talking about for uh, for Smells Like Teen Spirit, um, back in the day, MTV used to play their videos that they weren't 100% sure would be taken correctly or videos that they thought were a little edgy or risque on a late night uh, show called 120 Minutes. And that's where it got its debut and it took off like wildfire from there. MTV really propelled it a lot because from what I was reading, and I never knew this, but going back to what I was talking about with the not knowing the lyrics and those liner notes not being released until 92 with the lithium single, the DJs were, or or the radio DJs were like, hey man, I don't know if we should play this because I can't even tell what the hell they're saying. I saw a quote, quote that said, one of the DJs said that it was like the Louie Louie uh of the, of the 90s because everybody was jamming to it but no one really knew what they were saying inside uh yeah but it definitely came to uh to number one and and went on from there yeah they kick-started the movement because grunge was a very big pop force in popular music throughout the early 90s it was a one of the dominant sounds of that time Oh, yeah. And, you know, we talked about it last week, but the clickiness of listeners, maybe because it was my teenage years, but I could feel it 
all around. There was a very, like, if you listen to grunge, you listen to grunge. If you listen to rap, you listen to rap. If you listen, you know, and there was these groups. Um, This one was part of that grunge movement, the king of that grunge movement for a little while. And there was a lot of these bands coming out of Seattle. So you'll hear me say the Seattle sound, but there was a good bit of the grunge sound coming out of Seattle and some good stuff coming out of Seattle as well. This was just one of several. And actually, interestingly, this isn't even the highest selling grunge album in the U.S. What took the top? Pearl Jam's 10. I'm pretty Um, sure. I believe that. That sold more than this in the U.S. 10 was everywhere, man. I don't think I knew one person that didn't have that album. Even in the clickiness, like you had it. Girls loved that. Guys loved it. Everybody loved 10. Yeah, I guess a bit more so than Nevermind. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, never, Nevermind dropped in 91. So a lot of my memories of it came from 93. 94 because that's when i was coming into like seventh and eighth grade when i was really like talking to my friends and listening hard of course before he passed but it was i knew never mind i didn't know never mind when i was in fourth and or fifth and sixth grade it was a little bit above my pay grade at that point or above my my normal listening i and uh, i mean you guys know i was listening to michael jackson crazy back then so <laughs> i hadn't even really dived into the sound and really i went more to a sound garden home base with the grunge sound than I did Nirvana. But yeah, this was, this was later on and uh, it was still talked about. It was still cool. <laughs> yeah. It still is considered cool. So yeah, man. I mean, think about the, the amount of, well, you probably looked at it and, and I, I didn't even try to write it all down, but just the amount of cover, people doing covers of, 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 oh, of yeah. songs on this album is insane man i mean all really the way is. to like one of my favorites is when you and mcgregor start singing smells like teen spirit in moulin rouge like, like you've gone all the way to the polar opposite of of the genres here and uh and it's still singing through oh that man this could, a, this could be a three-hour pot now i'm just kidding. Mm. <laughs> here we go down memory lane we'll see about that because <laughs> More nostalgic for you than for me, this one, that's for sure. Yeah, because what? This was 91 released, and you were born in what? 97. 97, heard, yes. So, so this this whole thing had been, I won't say done and over, because the sound still lives, uh, even in, if anything, less infamy uh, to this day. But it was something that you didn't even live through as far as the media blitz and the whole, the whole nine throughout their career, which, you know, this is early on in this career, in their career. And a lot of these guys, well, all of these guys were different people back then as far as what they were thinking from what we can get from the biography and things like that, from, from what they were thinking, from what they were saying and, and from what they were living. Yeah. Leaps and bounds from where it ended up, in, in my opinion. I would agree with that. And I do like a lot of older music. I do try to listen to albums as much as possible in the context of the time that they were created in. But this is one I'm not going to lie. This is what something I really am not connecting with on another level more than usual. There's something really just not clicking with me, I'm afraid. Not completely. I don't hate this, though. I'm here to say as many nice things as possible, but... 
No, nah, but you don't have, you know, let it out. Let, uh, that's that's what we're here for. We're listening on all sides. I appreciate the niceness, but there's always polarizing aspects of what we listen to, you know, divisive aspects of any great artist or band or sound, period. So let it fly, baby. Let it fly. <laughs> well, with that being said, <laughs> we're going to go track by track through this album. We're going in before we go in. Wait, what did I mean, you want to talk about first? I, it's just one another one of those crazy iconic covers of the nineties. Oh um, yes, you know, we do there, have to talk about that. Well, well, there. Cover, I mean, it, well, yeah, a cover of of a, a young baby floating just under the pool uh, water line and a dollar bill on a fishing wire being dangled in front. I maybe I'm showing my age here, but I think I'd be pretty hard pressed to find anybody who didn't know where this image came from um or or what album it was from um but definitely one of the the iconics you know we did janet period last week you can't forget that cover uh this is in my opinion another cover that you're you're never going to forget if i'm correct and i tried to find this charlie and i couldn't i'm almost positive back in the day when you would and and i was i was what like i said seventh eighth grade when you would go buy it there was a parental advisory sticker right over the penis of the baby that's <laughs> i swear there was maybe i couldn't find it maybe i'm making it up in my head if anybody remembers that post it up so i don't feel like such a crazy old man but <laughs> i could have swore they used to cover up his little ding ding with a parental advisory the black and white warning i wouldn't be surprised what I did learn about the cover is that it was Kurt Cobain's idea. He came up with it after watching a show about underwater birth. No shit. I didn't see that. Hey. That was what I found. And it was in the headlines very recently, actually, because the subject of the cover filed a child pornography lawsuit against Nirvana, but it's been dismissed. Yeah, he got crushed. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and pass judgment on him because, uh, like I said, he got crushed. They... He went back twice, and then finally the judge was like, dude, statute of limitations. Like, you got 10 years. You're like, come on, where are you at on this, you know? I thought it was very, in my opinion, I thought it was a very frivolous attempt at, at somebody suing, especially because the person tried to go, like, all the way on, like, child trafficking and all yada, yada, yada. Uh, I, I'm getting away from what I wanted to say about this cover because I, I told myself I wouldn't well, go down this line. It was in the news recently. That True. is what was in my mind with it. And I do agree with you, especially considering I think that that just takes away from real victims of child pornography. I mean, a bottom line, that's a great point, but what a great bottom line. Like, are you joking me? I don't know if he was paid on the album or if his folks were paid. I didn't look into it that deep, but regardless, man. Yeah. Regardless. I think it, no, I think stuff like that takes away from real victims, but. Here's the thing. And oh Christ, I thought myself I was going to do it. This guy was never walking down the street. It's not like he had to live every day and people were like, you were the baby from the Nirvana cover. Like, no one would have known that unless you said it. Right. So, you, you know, I. I don't want to sound like a heartless guy on this one, but come on. I agree with you. I hate to say it. I do agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. So let's go. Now it's time. We're going to jump on into it. Charlie's not going to hold anything back. Oh, no. And uh, let's go. I'm excited. <laughs> All right. So 
The album begins with Smells Like Teen Spirit, the famous lead single. Kurt Cobain admitted that with this song, he tried to write the ultimate pop song. He admitted to ripping off the Pixies, which I can definitely hear that sound in this song for sure. The riffin it's also been compared to Boston's More Than a Feeling, which I do hear that as well, but it's pretty interesting considering Boston are the inventors of the corporate rock sound that defined the 80s with bands like Journey and Foreigner and Styx, and this is not that, but yet that sound still here a bit, which I find interesting. Yeah, I, I never knew that before reading it, but it's such an ironic, cool thing. You can hear it if you try, but the way you say the irony between the corporate rock and this this alternative movement is is pretty cool. Especially considering how alternative Cobain tried to be in his commentary, but he couldn't even deny the similarity of that. It's like, yep, you sound a bit like Boston, but that's not a bad thing. More than the feeling's a great song, I think, so... Yeah, And uh, the title is, uh, so the story of the title is also quite well known. The Smells Like Teen Spirit title originated from Kurt Cobain and Kathleen Hanna from the band Bikini Kill, hanging out, spray painting an anti-abortion center. And uh, they got drunk together and Kathleen Hanna wrote Kurt Smells Like Teen Spirit on his wall after he passed out. And at the time... Kurt Cobain was dating one of Kathleen Hanna's bandmates, Toby Vale, and Vale wore a deodorant called Team Spirit. Kurt Cobain didn't even know what it was. Uh, he still used the phrase anyway, even though he didn't know about the deodorant. He just felt like it summed up the song well. I never knew that. I, I That's amazing. I never put Team Spirit deodorant together with this album. That's so crazy. But I mean, Teen Spirit was out there. Like it was like one of the more popular young lady deodorants back in the day. That's crazy. That's wild. Yep. That is the backstory of the title. But Kurt Cobain just felt like it summed up teenagers, the lyrics they were going for, I guess, and the sound. And I can definitely see that it does have that energy. These guys were still in their early 20s when they recorded this. So. They still had a bit of that teenage rebellion energy in them, I guess. And that came out in this song. And it's the only song on this album that all three members are credited with writing, actually. Because the recording took so long that Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl changed their parts enough that they got a writing credit. So good for them. And as you said, MTV aired the video on 120 Minutes. And they had fans from one of their shows be extras in the video and be in this gymnasium. And Cobain had the concept of a pep rally gone wrong, inspired by a couple of films. It was directed by a guy named Samuel Bayer. He was a new director at this time. And they actually got into a screaming match during the shooting, so Bayer didn't do another video for this album from them because of that. It was a long, tense shoot. It lasted 12 hours, but it paid off. This video helped the song get big and get exposed, and this song reached number six on the Hot 100 twice, and one of the times, the number one song was actually I'm Too Sexy by Right Said Fred, which is hysterical. <laughs> this song was so big, it was often called the anthem of a generation, which is a lot to put on a song. 
And Kurt Cobain was uncomfortable with its success, even though he set out to be a rock star and make a hit record. Because if you're on a major label, you have to have a successful record or you lose your job because you get dropped. So that's the way I see that. But he eventually came to really detest the song. And that's not the first story I've heard of somebody detesting their biggest hit. But I don't know if as many people have done it as thoroughly as Mr. Cobain did. Yeah, it was without getting too, because this is going to happen throughout the album where we're going to talk about this. But that back and forth fight of being this anti-establishment figurehead. Oof, I shouldn't even use the word figurehead because he would hate that I said that and and it would it would speak to what he always said he was trying not to do. Uh he was caught in between that rock in a hard place of being anti-establishment and being a super successful rock legend. And legend now but more so just a super successful uh rock band period. Sometimes even back then it just seemed a little bit like a character that he would put on sometimes uh, for the cameras. Like sometimes it felt genuine, but I think it's it's even uh, who was the producer? Who was the original producer on this album that they fought for? We were talking about him earlier. Uh, Vig. Vig. Vig had said like, man, they love this album. And then Kurt said that because you can't be behind an album or you can't say you love something that, you know, again, going back to this rock in the hard place of like being an anti-establishment guy. So it, it's tough to discern. Or for me as a listener and a watcher, it was tough to discern from what was real and fake. And and I'm a, I'm a WWE fan. So, you know, <laughs> I, I should be pretty good at that. But... <laughs> You never know, you know, his kayfabe was insane. As far as a song, though, as far as one, an opener for an album, but two, just a, a, a rock song, Smells Like Teen Spirit comes out of the gate crushing. You know, it's a 4-8-12 bar song, and it doubles on its own guitar just for that extra power. And it, it's been said, and, and I'm paraphrasing a bunch of different quotes, but... Long story short, it becomes, it really does, it becomes a template for what we hear for almost the next nine, ten years, for almost this this whole decade. We hear this sound come back and back and back and back. Okay. As we've established, I was not present when this song was released. 91 was the year my parents got married, so I wasn't even a thought yet. <laughs> and this is a song that, I heard on the radio multiple times and I never knew what it was, but I'd heard of this song and band before. And one day I had Shazam out and said, I'm going to find out what this is because I think this is a good song. And I found out, oh, this is Smells Like Teen Spirit. I just never heard the title, so I didn't know. Dig it. You know, we go back to talking about the clickiness too and not knowing. This one went across all the different, like, it would be played on the oldies. Well, not the oldies, but like it would be played on the rock station. It would be played on the college station. This was one of those ones that spanned those clickiness, which was weird for, for that alternative sound, too. It wasn't. This isn't my main genre, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you this isn't a great song. I agree with everything you said about it. Okay. It rocks hard and it has a great hook. The voice is a bit hard to understand, but it's distinct. And there still isn't quite a song out there quite like this. It was a, a really unique song. I can hear that. And I won't take anything away from it being a great song. I'm just not seeing 
this is possibly because I wasn't there. I'm not seeing the whole anthem of a generation angle. I don't see it as any more than just a great song, but that's still a great accomplishment, a great song, but I don't think it's transcendent or otherworldly like some other people do. I won't say transcendent, but there was a time, and still, I guess, for anybody my age who lived then, like you were saying, where when this hit, it didn't matter who was playing it. Like, I saw Bruno Mars. He, Bruno Mars does a cover of this um, where he mixes it with Billy Jean on one of his live shows. And even just seeing him go into it, there's just not a time where this song doesn't hit off that I'm just automatically ready to mosh and, and get down and, and, and get out there, at least dance. Um, but all those those feelings of the teenage angst and, and frustration and raging against the machine, <laughs> it just comes back. So the transcendence, maybe it's there, but for anything, it was just something that everybody related to back then. Um, and I think that's where that phrase was coined. And also, I was never an emo kid. I guess that was my generation's version of that. I was never an emo kid. So maybe that's part of why I don't fully get it and see it as more than a great song. But it's still a great song. And before we move on from it, there's a kind of cover I would like to talk about and give special attention to. In 1992, Weird Al Yankovic approached Nirvana when they were the musical guests on SNL. He had tried contacting them, but wasn't able to, and he asked them if he could do a parody of Smells Like Teen Spirit, and Kurt Cobain said yes. And Weird Al made a song called Smells Like Nirvana. I love this song, too, by Weird Al. This is one of his best parodies. It's mostly about how he can't understand what Kurt Cobain's actually singing. There were no lyrics (laughs) to decipher and he just turns it on its head brilliantly and he parodied the video too even his album cover was weird al swimming in the pool he really used nirvana to help his own career which it did it was a bit of a comeback for weird al he'd had some setbacks over the couple of years before it but this became a top 40 hit for him smells like nirvana and my favorite line is now we don't sound like Madonna. Here we are now. We're Nirvana. You know, come to think of it, it might have been the cover of Weird Al's album that had the explicit thing over over. I mean, that the... was a grown man, admittedly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it might have been that one. <laughs> but I love Smells Like Nirvana, and I did feel the need to give it a shout out on this podcast because... A yeah, great man. song as well. Yeah, man. Especially with, I mean, they've got the Weird Al uh, biopic coming up. So I'm excited to see that one too. Yeah, with Daniel Radcliffe. That should be interesting. Now we're going to move on to track number two, In Bloom. Kurt Cobain's biographer, Charles Cross, says this song is about a friend of Kurt's named Dylan Carlson. Some people interpret it as the about Nirvana's non-underground fans. However, it's too soon for that because the album hadn't blown up yet. And uh, this song was also a single. It was the fourth single in the UK, but it was promo only in the US because an album called Incesticide, which was a rarities compilation, was released at the time. So they decided not to push a single too much, which made sense at this point so many people had bought the album they already knew the song because it's number two on it you 
at least had to have heard this after Team Spirit, I would think, even if you didn't finish the whole thing. And I found one great story about this. So Dave Grohl harmonized with Kurt Cobain on this one. And Grohl described what he did as pulling a Keith Richards. He sipped Jack and puffed a cig for each take. And his voice kept cracking. And by the time he got the vocal done, he'd had half a bottle of Jack. There you go. That's how you record a song right there. Yes, I thought that was a great story. I like this song, too. I think it keeps the album going very nicely. It has a great hook as well. This one's been in my head throughout this time spent researching. This is one that keeps getting stuck in my head. I'm like, okay. And I also like the video for it, too. It's a parody of... The Ed Sullivan Show, and I enjoyed what they did there. I thought it was really clever and kind of a precursor to Weezer's Buddy Holly video in a way, actually, which is also an awesome song and video. In Bloom, I like this one. It's a bit dark, but it does have a really strong hook to it. I do wish it would have been an actual top 40 hit, even though I know that's not really what they were going for. But I'm a fan of In Bloom. I like this song. It might not have been a top 40 hit, but this is definitely one that was sang all over the place. I remember having recess arguments with my friends of was it hell no? Was it hello? Was it hello? Like no one knew. And and we're again, we'll probably go back to that a million times throughout this. They were on purpose doing a even when they practiced during this and even when they were starting to record sheep, which was what this album was originally going to be called, but they were doing this low intensity to high intensity playing almost like that whisper to the scream. And this is one of the first times we really see it on this album. Like you said, great song. The buddy Holly video is, is always a classic shot in like an old, an old style way with like a sepia tone to it. Kurt Cobain in which would ironically become one of his iconic pieces, like the cardigan sweater, um, but like really done up and, and they, you know, they were all hairbrushed and the whole nine. It was, it was a cool one. And it does, it, it, it lends itself as a precursor to the Weezer Buddy Holly video. I don't know if it was an inspiration, but they're very, very similar in the way they look. Weezer had their own influences for that, I'm sure, that were beyond Nirvana. I think they're actually pretty explicit in the Buddy Holly video, but we're not talking about Weezer. Before we move (laughs) on from this song, I want to talk about the double tracking of the vocals here. I think it's so well done on this album, and Cobain was averse to it. He was like, no, I don't want to do it, but Butch Vig had to say, the Beatles did it, Lennon did it, and that was how Cobain got to do it, and I'm glad he did, because this is a song, it's not the same. It does not have the same effect without that double-tracked vocal. Neither does Teen Spirit, for that matter. And those effects really elevate this song so well. I love how that's done, because it's pretty hard to harmonize with voices this guttural. So the double-tracking really takes this to another level and elevates the song for me. Yeah, I just always took it for granted through my whole life that that was Grohl. And learning that that was double tracked, the production was awesome. Great, great point on that, Charlie. Great point. We keep on going with that great sound with track number three, Come As You Are. I've read a couple different stories about this inspiration. One of them was that Kirk got the idea from a church sign with the phrase. I think that's a pretty interesting (laughs) thing. 
And he said the song was intentionally contradictory, which I believe that's part of the point. I think it's really well done. I like that about this song. And it has a more concrete point than the lead single, which I like as well, as awesome as the lead single was. But I have an interesting story for how I first heard this song. It was not the Nirvana version. It was a cover on the fourth season of American Horror Story Freak Show. In his character, Evan Peters did a cover of Come As You Are. Ooh, I haven't haven't heard that one. That was the first time I remember hearing this song ever, and my freshman year roommate knew the whole song and was singing along to it, which was kind of funny because he hated that I watched American Horror Story. (laughs) He thought it was very disturbing. I would watch season five Hotel when it aired, and... He hated that I did that. That's probably one of the reasons he blocked me after he moved out from living with me because of the American Horror Story. I probably gave him nightmares. But yeah, that season wasn't my favorite, but it did have a few musical performances in it. And that was an interesting twist. But that was the first time I heard this song. But I thought, oh, this is a cool song. But I found out, oh, it's a cover. It's Nirvana. But I thought, what a cool song. And Evan Peters is awesome, too. I think he's a great actor, so. Was it like a spooky version of this? Of this, or It was or... pretty straightforward from what I recall, actually. Yeah. It was pretty straightforward, even though the setting for that season was in the 1950s. It kind of yeah. works for a show like American Horror Story, I think. It does. It does. It's that lead in intro that single string do do doom boom 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 has a creepiness to it um that we've come off two pretty hardcore time signatures and then we walk into this and slow down a bit on the third track here growing up well one a nice anecdotal is this is one of my favorites from back when i was learning how to play guitar i think anybody who was who was trying to impress the young ladies back in the day. This is a pretty easy one to pick up. Nirvana was always in guitar world and the tablatures were right there in front of you. But this is one you could just pick up with, with your own ear. But two, a lot of people back in the day always said this was a drug song. And if you really, I mean, again, we didn't have the lyrics. So you would hear stuff like doused in mud. Uh, well, I'm, I'm doing it wrong and I got them over here. What was it? Dowsing mud soaked in bleach. Uh, You know, it it had that heroin feel. But in fact, I I never took it as that. I never took it as that. I'm I'm more gravitated to the old take your time, hurry up, choice is yours, don't be late mentality of the whole entire song and just took it as an. And again, I was a teenager at the time. So it was like, yeah, you know, they're trying to tell me what to do this way and that way, this way and that way. And it makes no sense. I'm just going to come as I am. Um, this is this is one of my nostalgic favorites. In listening to it over and over and over and over again, as I did in this past week, it doesn't necessarily hold up as much as it used to to me. It's still a great song, but it's not as epic as I remember it to be. Okay. I never thought of this as being as a drug song. I think people like to think about sex, drugs, and rock and roll and think, A lot of songs are about drugs when they're really not. They just like to look for that meaning. Some folks search for that. That's my belief. Well, the University of Washington actually uh, set or tried to set up a 
memorial fund to uh, establish an addiction treatment center titled the Come As You Are Center. Uh, But the funding fell through. And then it was a whole to do about how it wasn't necessarily a drug song. And people were pretty up in arms about that, actually. Oh, wow. I mean, I'm guessing they just wanted to signify that it was in the Kurt Cobain name, but have an appropriate-ish name for a rehabilitation clinic. I'm not sure what that thought process was, but... Yeah, it never came to fruition, so it wasn't thought through too well. <laughs> I mean, they're not going to call it the Lithium Center. Come on. No, no. And, and you know, it's funny you say that because that's the one that screams drugs because of its title, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but in fact, is not. Yeah. Before we move on, because I talk about the videos, I want to mention this one has a very impressionistic style to it. There's a lot of random images in it, like waterfalls, dog in a cone, a lot of random stuff, but it kind of works. But interestingly, I listened to portions of his audiobook for research where Dave Grohl and the storyteller said, this video is really hard for him to watch because Kurt looked so unhealthy in it. And it was because he was using heroin at the time. Oh, which wow. Was a shock to Dave Grohl. He wasn't familiar with that drug at all. And I really felt Grohl's pain a bit when he was talking about it because I think in our, I know at least in my adult life, I fortunately was not surrounded by drugs. I don't know what gets people to get to a point of wanting to use heroin or how they're even exposed to that. I have no idea. And I think that many of us eventually know somebody who does it and we don't see why they would have done it. It's very confusing to us, but it's an eye-opening moment, sadly, for a lot of adults, including myself. I've seen that and I really felt him when he said that about Kerr and how he was naive to how serious it was because he just didn't know. Yeah, it wasn't his scene. And and like you said, it's for, for anyone who's never seen it uh firsthand or or see what it can do firsthand, it it'll it'll sweep somebody up and take them away from us in a heartbeat. So uh that pain is real and and I'm glad you shared that. I didn't know I didn't even realize that Grohl had spoke out on that. So we're gonna move on to track number four, which is Breed. And I found out that this song was originally called Emodium, which I find hysterical. <laughs> and this is explicitly about Kurt Cobain's breakup with Toby Vale of Bikini Kill. I really love the drums on this song. Dave Grohl is going at it on this. The rhythm on this song is impeccable. That's the highlight of it for me. The musicality here is impressive. It really rocks hard. I feel the lyrics are a bit redundant, but I think that's the point, kind of. And I could see that point. It's not. Well, it is one of the better songs on the album, but it's not as good as the first three. But I still like it okay in the context of this album. I like what they're going for. It definitely has a punk feel to it. Stole the words right out of my mouth. For coming off of Come As You Are, this turns the record sound right back on its head. And we hit this super punk run uh, in the intro, um, carried by the one and only Dave Grohl. Um, I love the chorus of the song and this song, it, it's always one that, that I jam out to. Um, but you're right. The Dave Grohl is, is the champion of this song, or at least sets the tone of this song. And it's one that might not necessarily be on everybody's listening list, but if you're listening to the album, especially for the first time, you're, you're jamming and you're right back into it. 
Dave Grohl MVP of this song. That was the main point I had to make about it. So I'm glad we're on the same page about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look at the musicians inside of Nirvana, period. Just who they were, regardless. All of them are standout musicians. But when you look at Grohl to this day and, and look at his growth from Scream all the way to, to where we are now, it's phenomenal. And he, he'll always be one of the top musicians, in my opinion, and hopefully in the opinions of many. Well, he's the top musician in this band for me, that's for sure. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. We're not at the worst of this yet. Well, uh, we might be a bit here. So track number five is Lithium. And it's about a man turning to God after contemplating suicide. Cobain was specifically inspired by his Aunt Mary. And this song was infamously played at the 1992 VMAs because it was their current single at the time. It was a compromise because MTV wanted them to do Smells Like Teen Spirit, but Cobain was like, no, we're not going to do that. They actually wanted to play the then-unreleased song Rape Me, but MTV really objected to that, so they compromised to do Lithium, and... That was what happened. They did a bit of Rape Me just to freak out MTV, but then they went into Lithium. As is their style, as is tradition, even though at, you know MTV can say what they want right now, but once Rape Me went off and, and they were making boatloads off it, they had nothing bad to say about it, you know? Oh, um, of course not. Yeah. It just wasn't released yet, yeah, not they were tested. Scared. And, and rightfully so, and rightfully so. The opening lick on this one with the palm-muted strumming after Breed calms me down just a tad before this song brings me back energy-wise. Um, maybe not up to the point where I've been on Breed and, and before in this album, but it definitely brings me up. Uh, this is lithium lithium's a good one and and i never knew really again we go back to the no liner notes back in the day so like i didn't necessarily put two and two together with the whole coming to god but i had to look it up so yeah no it, it actually in the biography come as you are the story of nirvana uh, Michael Azarod uh, described the song's title as an update on Marx's description of religion as the opiate of the masses. I don't know if that okay. was the case, but it was there, you know? Yeah. Who knows? This is my first hot tea take. I think this is the most overrated song on the album. This just doesn't have much of a kick to it for me. I don't know why that is. I like the concept of it. I just don't think Kurt Cobain's the best songwriter to do this concept and uh, i think this band's main selling point is its musicality not its lyrics i know some people love their lyrics but i think the musicianship's the main selling point this one just overrated is my thought on this one thinking about you while i was listening to this album and knowing how great you are and how much of a love it is of yours to break down lyrics and really see i knew that it was going to be a challenge and I think that actually it's my opinion as well, as far as uh, Nevermind, where the musicality of this album way outshines Kurt Cobain's lyric writing because, and, and he, he'll he say it, many people have said it, like 
this album is really pieced together lyric wise. Like he's pulling out of poems over here, pulling out a little short stories he wrote over here, like literally finishing lyrics and, and their presentation in the song, like right at recording. Um, so this is definitely a more vague album as far as his lyrics go I, in utero really for, in my opinion speaks, he gets way better at saying what he means. I, I, and again, in my opinion, in, in utero, you have songs that you can't really get around their meanings because they're presented in a, uh, in a way that you can understand them. <laughs> um, but I totally can feel you on that vibe. But what I found out is this is the song he actually wrote linearly. Right. It's funny. I was as I was it was coming out of my mouth. I was like, Kirk Cobain's went on record being like, yeah, this is the only song I wrote all the way through. <laughs> but it's just not my favorite. I know this is one of the more beloved songs on the album. It was the third single. It made it up to 64 on the Hot 100. And I forgot to mention Come As You Are was 32 as a top 40 hit. But a lot of people weren't going to buy these physical singles because they bought the album. That's really what that's about. Most definitely. I don't know if you if you read it, but um, there was a bunch of inspiration on this one coming from when he was bouncing around from home to home. And he ended up living with a buddy of his who had some some very Christian minded parents. And it's been said, I don't know if he said it. Actually, he did say this. In the song, it's a guy's lost his girl and his friends, and he's brooding, and he's decided to find God before he kills himself. And then this is his words. It's hard for me to understand the need for a vice like that, but I can appreciate it, too. People need vices. Uh, and this this quote really goes back to the whole, I'll use the word hypocritical thinking of Kurt Cobain sometimes, but also stuck in that rock in a hard place of who are you? Who do you, who do you want to show the world and who do you want to keep away from the world? And that's a tough one. If you've got two different people there and he sure as hell had two different people there. Maybe that's my issue with it because I have a issue with his hypocrisy in his overall public image that he presented. Maybe that's why this one doesn't connect for me. That's probably my best guess, but heard that. We're not at the worst of that yet, fortunately. Uh, we're still at a pretty decent place for that. So track number six is Polly. This was inspired by the 1987 kidnap and rape of a girl named Polly while she was hitchhiking home from a concert. And this song is different in that Kurt Cobain takes the perspective of the perpetrator, not the victim. And uh, he rightfully makes this guy look like a piece of shit. And that's the point. I like that this is an acoustic song because. Well, one, it gives us some time to mellow out a bit, and two, it rightfully shines light on this really fucked up situation. This song was actually originally considered for Bleach, but it wasn't used because it didn't fit in. But I like this one. I don't love it, but I like it. Yeah, this one is always a classic uh, for me. It really took its legs in my love of it during the... Um, unplugged album which is a phenomenal album in its own right but polly on that album just seemed to to excel and you're right that this is about that the terrible terrible story of how this girl was taken and raped and he 
put his creative spin on it and had the victim fool the kidnapper into thinking she was enjoying what he was doing to her, uh, causing him to let his guard down enough for her to escape. And that was his take. It's crazy to think about writing or crazy to me to think about writing a song about about rape, period. But it's pretty wild. And and I uh, one of the things that you find when you're, you know, going in and diving deep in the liner notes to Incesticide, Cobain wrote that, and this is quote unquote at this point, last year a girl was raped by two wastes of sperm and eggs while they sang the lyrics to our song Polly. I have a hard time carrying on knowing there are plankton like that in our audience. So even, you know, he might have chose to write this about this story, but the hate he felt in his heart and then to find out that it had spawned hate in the world was disheartening to him. And this is where I'm going to make this point. I obviously don't condone any of what happened. I understand why Cobain was appalled by it and that his song was used for it. But his whole thing about being uncomfortable with his audience changing. Here's my issue with that. As I said earlier, if you are signed to a major label, you are setting out to make a successful record. You, he even said at times he wanted to be the biggest band in the world. It may be fair that he didn't know the baggage that that entailed, but that means you are playing for all kinds of people. You're putting your art out there for everybody. And just because they're the kind of people you may not have liked, if they were just the jocks or hipsters, not as extreme as the rapists, of course, we have every reason to despise those, but just because they're the jocks and hipsters you weren't friends with in high school, I feel like he's talking down on them and saying, you're not good enough to buy my record. And I do not think that is a good message to send out to your fans because, sir, you made an album that was more successful than you ever could have imagined. And is there baggage with that? Sure. And even his bandmates felt some of this at the time, but not to the extent that he did. However, I feel like in these comments that he makes, he's almost showing contempt for these fans who helped fill his pockets and buy this album. And I don't like that. I think that you should show a little bit of gratitude for the fact that you were able to make a successful record, whether it was more successful than you wanted it to be or not. There should be gratitude for that because that's more than many, many other musicians even get to. Many people would love to be in your position and here you are basically shitting on your fans. I can see, and I, you know, there's a huge thing to be said, and you just said it. When you take up a mantle like this, and you want to be the biggest band in the world, or you want to be a creator, period, uh, as we know it these days as an influencer, you take a silent contract and have a responsibility to these people, regardless of whether you like it or not. And that's very tough. Now, the reason I think I take his sometimes hypocritical stance and also pompous stance is because for me, it was part of that movement, part of that apathy for the day-to-day life that we all were really eating up with a spoon at, at my age. And, and, and for, I guess I'll speak for most of like the, the teenagers back then, it was that deal. It was that, that pompousness that we love to have telling everybody that, you know, we didn't want to be cool when, in fact, we wanted to be cool as hell. Um, so I, I can I don't necessarily share with you. I can see where you're coming from, but only because 
I lived it inside of where he was. And I never took it as him shitting on anybody. I just took it as him being a grunge, being a pompous, cooler than everybody. But we're not cool. But, you know, we're cooler. I don't know. It's very tough to explain. But there was this pompousness of this whole entire movement that rang true. He, he He was a very loud one for that for that but i that's why i I think i take that with a grain of salt i mean i'm not an expert on this movement from what i see admittedly he's gotten older but eddie vetter certainly seems a bit more magnanimous than this guy ever was oh no eddie vetter was a totally different beast eddie eddie vetter might have been inside that sound but eddie vetter was never a standout grunge guy eddie vetter was a in fact, Eddie Vedder, and this again, I'm going on my opinion. Eddie Vedder always seemed to like be a Neil Young in the wrong era to me, but he was making beautiful music inside of the sound that we all loved. And that's why I gravitated towards Pearl Jam because he had that singer songwriter esque vibe that I didn't necessarily get a lot in this genre. This is fair. And also, Dave Roll is far more magnanimous than Kurt Cobain as well, but. He's Almost also definitely. had time to grow, of course. He got that chance, but yeah. we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're on to your track seven, Territorial Pissings. This yeah, is man. a 180 from the last song. Woo, we're back spinning on our head again on track yeah, seven. This is almost thrash metal to me. That's yeah. what this reminded me of. Yeah. In my notes, I have Dave Grohl in caps with seven exclamation points. Here he comes again, reminding us of what album we're listening to and where we're at and reminding us that we're pissed off. <laughs> um, this was, uh, you know, you just got to find a way. Get you know, that, that, that. There's not really any lyrics to this song. It's like two refrains. And it, it, I see where you go with the thrash metal. It was just that frustration of society, in in my opinion, back, you know, that we all were like, all right, we'll listen to this. Hot take here, even though it's a cool, great song, this back in the day was the one I would skip over all the time. Oh, I mean, it's not one of my favorites on the album. I pretty much think it's just a rant more so than it is a oh, song. Oh, yeah, most, def- most definitely a rant. It's almost like an incomplete song. It's like a, it's like a refrain. You know, it's like a hook. It's like a it's like a three minute hook. I don't love that about this song. So it's not one of my favorites on this album because I don't think it's a fully completed song. Sounds a bit more like a demo, honestly, a good sounding demo. But it's you're right. It's not completed. No. And uh, this song was allegedly inspired by something called the Scum Manifesto. Scum being the Society for Cutting Up Men, which makes this a feminist song because they felt women should rule the world, which that's cool if it's true. We don't know that for sure. Cobain didn't say that as far as I know. Interestingly, this song did get some in for me because going against the grain, Nirvana played this when they appeared as the musical guests on SNL. That's where you remember it from? Well, no, that's how it's most well known, I mean. Oh, dig it, yeah, yeah. I'd never heard this song before I listened to the whole album, which was just this week. But it's not my least favorite here, but I don't really think it's much of a song at all. So there's that. Yeah, for me, this one was always an incomplete thought and one that I usually just went right over. I mean, I knew it, but I just went right over it. And it's not the one I would have went over, but I can see where you're coming from. (laughs) that and you uh, still haven't hit the one you went over i'm excited for this go on <laughs> yeah. 
All right. So now we're on to track number eight. We're still not there yet. This is Drain You. This has been interpreted as being about possibly Toby Vale or heroin, maybe both. Who knows? Kurt said he made it up on the spot. This song has more studio trickery than a lot of the other songs on the album. There are six guitar tracks, and for this to be done, Butch Vig actually told Kurt Cobain that his takes weren't good enough so he would keep doing them and create the sound, which was a smart move. Butch Vig clearly knew how to work with this dude, which is impressive because I wouldn't want to have worked with this guy. Sounds like kind of a douche, but... Well, and uh, I mean, later on, he 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 always had a reputation as a tough guy to work with throughout his career. But Vig, they actually fought for Vig um, with Geffen. They, you know, uh, they were like, we got this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. And they're like, no, please, Vig. Um, so there had to be some kind of a love hate relationship there uh, that worked out well. Oh, I'm sure. And Vig knew how to push these guys. So that was really good of him. And there are some odd sounds on it. We hear a rubber duck an aerosol can and rattling chains. I especially like the rubber duck. That's a pretty cool sound. Um, the one thing I do like about this song, I have to say, I feel that the desperation in the lyrics and the vocal are very raw and real, despite all these tricks used. So overall, I think this is an okay one. It's not one I'd go back to listen to over and over again, but I can appreciate the um, emotion in it. I feel that that's something very real, and I can see how it connected with a lot of people. I think it's emotion that's presented a lot of different ways. It's not the preferred way for me to listen to it, but I can see where it would be somebody else's. Yeah. For me, this one definitely always sounded like a breakup song. I, I never heard that. Uh, he wrote it on the spot, but like we were talking about, this lyrically is all over the place from poems to, again, right on the spot. So I believe that. But this one always sang as a straight up breakup song to me. Um, that that heartbreak I always felt when I listened to it. It's it's a good song. For me, when Kurt starts to go into the heartbroken side of himself, as far as with love, it never really translates the way the rest of his meanings do. But not a bad song. That's all I really have to say about that one as well. So now we're on the track nine, Lounge Jack. This is the only song marked explicit on streaming for this album. And uh, it's about Toby Vale. And the bass line comes from the band's shocking blues song, Send Me a Postcard, which kind of an interesting band to take from. I'm not very familiar with them, but their biggest hit was the original version of Venus that was later covered by Banana Rama. You said the bass line was taken straight out of another song? Pretty much, yeah. That's also The bass line to this always reminded me of a ska sound straight off the bat. So it's interesting to hear that it was taken from something else. Yeah, not the only example. There was actually a thing with Come As You Are being taken from another song and might have been a lawsuit over it that went away, actually. Not remembering the other song at the moment, which is really bad of me, but whoever's listening will hopefully look it up and tell me what it is because... We're too far in the album now. We're on Lounge Act. Um, <laughs> this one's okay. I think it's not very dynamic for me. I feel like there's some wasted potential here. And uh, I love the title of the song, Lounge Act. This is another example of 
I like this title. I feel like this could be a really unique character portrait of somebody who is stuck being a lounge act for one reason or another that can go so many ways. I think this could have been a really unique, cool story. And it's not that. And I feel like it's wasted potential. Yeah, uh, the story for me here is the crappiness of being in a relationship with a girl that you are blindly in love with. But even after a breakup, you know, your friends and your loved ones around you who are like, yeah, what a terrible, terrible thing. You know, they still we go into the the repeated, uh, you know, still smeller on you uh, from this. Uh, it, it was definitely for me, that was always the lounge act. He was the dirty act that his friends and family were watching, even though like a lounge act, it's not necessarily what you want to watch. If somebody you love is in the lounge act, you go to the show. Um, so it was a tough one for him because he was conflicted inside of it. For me, this one and always but more so through this listen. It's a very pop-structured song. Dave Grohl even went on to say that they were making kid music for this album because they were dumbing it down so much for this pop sound. And this one, for me, is that really structured pop sound that I think he was talking... I would like to think he was talking about. You know, not a terrible song, but it's just... For me, the missed potential is where this song could have blossomed into if it wasn't just such a structured pop jam yeah i agree with that and i like a structured pop jam but heard you would think that means it screams single this definitely doesn't scream single at all so they did it for something that really shouldn't have been so yeah not a highlight for me i always felt seven and you know i love my seven i always felt seven eight and nine were iffy as far as like what do they bring to this table you know like what do they bring to the sound of this album i i felt like if it was an album album you know of course it got pressed but the b-side to this the side two is a little bit weak weaker than definitely weaker than the first side oh i completely agree and also this album was definitely pressed on cassettes so some people did listen to it on sides and I have to say, this is very often considered one of the all-time greatest albums, and the second half is so much weaker than the first. I really think it casts a blight on this album for me, honestly, because the first half is just so much stronger, especially those first three songs. Yeah. But we're still on the second half, and now we're on to track 10, which is Stay Away, which was actually originally called Pay to Play. I want you to start with this one. For me, Stay Away was always, it always sounded like Territorial Pissings and Lounge Act had a baby. And I go back to this, I don't know what this is adding to this album. When I get to the end of this album sometimes, or where we are, and and what I'm going to use the word, the doldrum of the album. We're in this weird valley um, where it might sound like we're still pumping and, and pushing and going hard, but we're we're starting to repeat sounds at this point. Uh, and Stay Away From Me just sounds like a mashup of these sounds and, and, and not my favorite. Okay. 
I agree with you about it not being my favorite. It is a mashup of sounds, and it's basically just another rant lyrically. However, this is my least favorite song on the album. I think this is actually my least favorite song we've covered so far on this podcast, period. I don't like this at all. And I do not like a couple of these lyrics. I feel they send out a very bad message. So first off, Kurt has a line in there where he takes aim at fashion shits, which hypocritical and ironic considering he married Courtney Love. But okay. What was the line, my bad? He takes aim at fashion shits, he calls them. Gotcha. Of like, Courtney Love liked to get dialed up. Come on. Yeah, yeah, she did. I, I think more so he was trying to like talk about fashion shows and that high societiness. But you're right. Courtney Love was a show in herself. So... <laughs> Yes, she was. I don't know if I would use the words dialed up. I never thought she was very dialed up, in my opinion. In comparison to these guys, I'm... Yeah, almost deaf. (laughs) And here's the one line I really do not like. I'd rather be dead than cool. I think that is a horrible message to send to people. I do not like that. And this is somebody who people looked up to as an idol and role model. And I am appalled that they did if he was saying something like this. I mean, I get that he was trying to put on an image, but that is not a good message to send to people. It we, is. We, we were fucked up group of kids back then, man. <laughs> it's it, as in every era has their their ins and outs, their, their intricacies. But that line right there was... Christ Almighty. Oh, man, I might get crucified for saying this, but you could put that on a stamp for the 90s, man, (laughs) or at least for the grunge alternative movement. Uh, You know that again, I take it with a grain of salt and I can see totally where you're coming from. Um, But I take it with a grain of salt because of, of what we were what we were vibing on back then what we were saying to each other how we were carrying ourselves in society and it was it was a wild time man it was a wild time i can i can only tell i what i can think and i never was was a punk head and i you know i it was it was right before me but akin to what i i would always think like the punk movement was like what i pictured the go-go's doing ahead of them come become a mainstream that that fucked up crazy wild la party and just no regard for for i say life but no regard for anybody else but themselves at that point that's that's where that's where i think that that lyric comes from or i would i would take well but no i can see where you're coming from though that's it's a bold fucking statement yeah and it's not a message that should be sent out at all and to me to me, that doesn't paint the message of somebody we should aspire to or be countercultural. It paints a disturbed man, which this guy really was. That's what I'm hearing from this. And maybe I'm being, maybe hindsight's 2020 and we know what happened and all. He had a very tragic end to his life, but I still do not like that idea. I don't agree with the concept. And you can be not traditionally cool and still live your life and do things. I don't think I'm traditionally cool, but I still do what I want. I try to have fun and do it, whether people think it's cool or not. It's not necessarily always been cool to think shares the best, but I still always did it. And you got to just embrace it, not have this attitude of I'd rather be dead than cool. I feel you there. I feel you there. But as far as who he was, I go back to that, um, that who are you showing the world and who are you not showing the world? And 
a, he was a very uh, conflicted artist, and, and I'm trying to say the the nicest way. You know, he was he was he was he was an out there dude, an out there out there dude, and we knew he was an out there dude, but he spoke to us. You know, he spoke to to what a lot of people were feeling back then, or you know, at least the cats that that I, I was I was hanging with. And it was it was a, it was a different vibe. I love the fact that you despise that lyric because of the positive way that you live your life, and and you you exude that into the world. And I think we all do at, at this day and age, or or at least try to. But when I look back to the years during this, uh, it was it was a, it was a little bit of a darker scene, especially with the the teenage guys and girls all right <laughs> no, i feel you dude so I, I lo- you are a champion of that high beautifulness on, on this one and i totally commend you for that but as far as uh you know just trying to play a, clearly a devil's advocate on, on that on that lyric there it fit it fit the times it fit this album and it fit his sound and it fit that character well that character is not a good role model and i have one more other thing to say about this song <laughs> It ends with him saying God is gay. He claims this is anti-homophobia. I think that's bullshit. I think that was just for shock value. Nah, he was he was super about that, Charlie. He was super No, I know he was. I'm not saying that he wasn't pro-gay rights, but yeah. you mean to tell me you didn't put that in just because you thought it would piss people off. I don't believe you. Uh, he I mean, I go back to the fashion shits. This was another stab at sexism uh for him. You know, that that fucking high society sexism, sexy girls going down the runway uh, and then to finish it off with the God is gay. This was this was him trying to champion what he in his heart stood up for. And I don't I got to disagree with you on that. I can see where you might take it, especially because uh, of the different times I love. I don't think I've ever talked about this album to somebody or at this length with somebody that was not alive. And we don't really ever run into that a bunch, but man, we talk, we've talked about divisive artists and divisive albums. Um, it's such a wild eye opener to hear someone who wasn't sitting in that scene. And I can tell, I totally get what you're saying, but I have to disagree on that one. I think that that was his first real, like I'm going to give it all the way out and I don't care what the hell anybody thinks about this. I'm going to tell you where I'm at on this one. Well, I'll tell you this much. I know I wasn't around, but the impression I'm under is that I don't think this spoke to the gays. I think they were still striking a pose to Madonna in 1991. So <laughs> I'll give you that. I'll give you that. But that doesn't mean that they weren't out there in flannels rocking to Nirvana. But no, I feel you. <laughs> I feel you. Just my thought on that. But now we're on to the next song, track number 11, On a Plane. I'll start with one good thing. It's much better than the last song. I'll say that much. <laughs> oh, I want to hear how you feel about On a Plane. And then I'll go on my On a Plane rant. Oh, okay. Well, I actually have a bit of one too. So it's All about right. what he said about the song. Um, This was like a radio single. Again, I think this is kind of a typical pop song structure. I don't think it's super dynamic for me. Doesn't have the kick it needs for me. I will take it over some of the past few songs, but doesn't stack up to some of the better songs here. No, not at all. And uh, Flipside Magazine mentioned to Kurt Cobain that 
They thought this song was reminiscent of some of the music of Cheap Trick, specifically their albums, Live at Budokan and Dream Police. And Cobain said that that was weird because he was listening to those albums the day he recorded it. But then he said, well, the song should have been more raw. And he said, I like Cheap Trick, but especially the first album because it was so punk. And Kurt, it's okay to admit that you like the pop band, which Cheap Trick are in some ways. You liked mm -hmm. Cheap Trick. They influenced you. It's okay to admit it. You wrote a pop song. Fucking admit it. Like, just yeah. stop with this whole, oh, I wanted it to be this way, man. It's like, no, you wrote a pop song. You wrote a pop song inspired by Cheap Trick. And guess what? It's not even anywhere near as good as Dream Please. So shut the fuck up. <laughs> you would have died in the 90s, boys. It was cool to be uncool back then. And he was the oh. fucking prince of uncool. <laughs> oh. <laughs> this one, though for me was always more of an anecdotal piece and i fucking love the musicality of this piece it's in my opinion the most beautiful track on the album um and this one was really more of like i said an anecdotal piece talking about his mother and i believe the line is my mother died every night yeah and that was you know that that abusive relationship when he was younger with her um this this is the most in-depth song because this song is about him writing a song about him writing a song, you know? And I, I always enjoyed this one. This is one of my most favorite musically on the album. I think it's just all right, but I really hate his reaction to it, if you can't tell. And still not as good as Dream Place. I will die on that hill. Hot tea take of the episode. Not as good as Dream Place. I'll play Devil's Advocate one more time on this and say, do you think that his divisiveness did exactly what he wanted it to do because even in 2022 there is a mr charlie that is like man whatever man you're cool and you don't even want to be cool and that's bullshit because that was that was the point <laughs> oh i'm sure he did at the ruffle some feathers just like my <laughs> beloved madonna like the ruffle the feathers but... <laughs> heard that, heard that. <laughs> So but yeah, on a plane, but, man, I love this cast darn song. All right. I thought you were gonna hate it when you said rant, but oh no, because I could I could keep going on and on about this song just musically and breaking it down that way. It's it, this is a breakthrough song, in my opinion, for them as far as musicians, and such a beautiful one at that. Very well. All right, on a plane. There we go. I definitely think it's Probably the best song in the second half of the album. I'll say that for sure. Very close. Very close, if not the best. It may, yeah, the only other contender, I think, is the next song, Something yes, in the Way. Most definitely. This is a very nicely restrained closer. And Urban Legend says that Kurt Cobain wrote this while he was homeless and living under a bridge. That's been refuted. It's not. He was just that unhappy, apparently. Yeah. And well, that is what it is. But I think this is a nice tune. I say Butch Vig explained when he did that vocal performance, it was like otherworldly. I'm like, I don't think it's quite that. But I think this is a very nice song and a good way to end the album. Yeah, a, a great ender. And it goes against my normal ending uh, where I say, don't you dare finish on a slow note. But I think the achievement here with something in the way is that after we've yelled and yelled and yelled and got all that anger out, 
throughout this album, Nirvana, and a lot of it in Kurt's vocal on this really make us do one thing, and that's feel again at the end of this album. We feel the sadness, we feel this song, we come back to reality, and again, in this time, it was it was a perfect ender to this album. You're back to, to feeling all types of sad again. <laughs> I know, but you're back to feeling, period. Uh, and that is something important, because this album, in my opinion, could have ended on another Dave Grohl, and we could have screamed, and the album could have been over, but we chose to, to end it with a song that always meant something to me, but I've feel like means something period fair that's fair i was still a little fired up from stay away honestly because i hated that song that much but i love it i love it i love it but this is a nice song so the the 90s are tearing us apart charlie (laughs) oh oh yes yes they are yes and uh, then there actually is again a hidden track we had one of those last week that's endless nameless it's just a weird hidden track. And Kurt said it was a taste of where they'd go on their next album. Stream of consciousness, lyrically, and uh, cool musically, but it's a hidden track. There's not a whole lot to it. I don't think it really adds or subtracts from the album. I mean, Endless, could, nameless. Yeah, you couldn't, and you couldn't have named it anything more perfect. I mean, <laughs> for me, this is, it was 10 minutes after the last, like, a minute and a half, well, it probably wasn't a minute and a half, like 45 seconds of silence after something in the way, and then 10 minutes. And then you get this, I think it was like six and a half minute track of what I always thought was just them jamming. Like, you know, just being like, yeah, let's just do sounds. Maybe we're warming up. I was that I just thought it was just warm up and crazy wild, like you said, uh, endless thought. You know, just musicians puking all over everything, (laughs) you know, and it's what it was. It's cool. It's there. It's the 90s. We're going to have a hidden track on every goddamn album we put out, but it doesn't. It's nothing. Endless and nameless. (laughs) All right. And there we have Nevermind. There it is. What grade do you give this album? I'm going first. No, Yes, you you. are. (laughs) Um, For me, this is a B plus. Uh, it almost made it up into the A. Uh, a Corey from 1995-4-3 would have given you an A-plus with six more pluses after it. Um, but the doldrum that I got even back then from the beat, from the side two was just a, a little bit more pronounced than it was when i was younger it's it's the b plus album for me because it really was the first time in grunge that we started to have these feeling songs uh you know we were talking about love we were getting down and again i'll say it 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 set a precedence and it was a blueprint for the grunge slash alternative sound that went forward from this. I'm going to give this album a B minus. No C. You did that just because of Janet, period, didn't you? (laughs) Well, mm, no, that's not why. So I do genuinely think the first half of the album is strong. Even if I think Lithium's overrated, I think the first three songs are all classics. I'm not going to take anything away from those being classics. I really do think the second half is not as strong at all. And I really hated Stay Away. And 
again, some of this just wasn't focused musically enough for me. And uh, I do try to separate art from the artist. Because researching Kurt Cobain the person, I really don't like this guy, if you couldn't tell. I think, I mean, I feel bad for him in some ways. He clearly was a disturbed man, but sometimes you just gotta put on your big boy pants, in my opinion. And I think he failed to do that with his reaction to success. He had the resources to do better and did not use them, but that's a different discussion. And uh, I do wish he were more grateful and less hypocritical, but he wasn't. And uh, while I do try to separate it, it's a bit hard for me in this case because this is Kurt Cobain. He wrote every song on the album. These are his lyrics. This is his worldview. The music and the man go right together. And because of that, it's really hard to separate it more so than, say, Michael Jackson. I mean, people believe what they want about him, but I think it's easier to separate a great song like Billie Jean from all the potential possible scandals involving Michael Jackson. I think that's easier than it would be with a Kurt Cobain because this is so much his worldview. That's what you're getting here. It's him. And it's not one that I entirely agree with, but then again, I wasn't there for this time. I think I'm missing something here, but I'm going to give it a B minus. I'll tell you what, this, this episode's, up till now and 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 you know this episode period has been such a neat one for for me and hopefully for us uh one we could have sat here and bashed thoughts and and processes that we didn't enjoy but we showed that professionalism and we broke it down but we really in my opinion are growing where we're we're you know we're not going to do albums that we don't believe in period um but for us to have different views and even if it was about time or or time lived uh, i think we did a great job breaking this one down i'm going to toot our own horn on this and say that was right. it's probably one of the most polarizing uh ones that we've done so far so thank you for for taking that journey with me and i'm hoping i hope you got a little bit of enjoyment out of the old nevermind i got some i just don't really care to look too much into this guy anymore that's all but there you go well what is your favorite song on the album for me my favorite song on this album is on a plane okay yeah i i can't get around the way that the musicality of on a plane has always sang to me um it just takes me to a different place than the rest of this album. Um, so on a plane is, is my favorite. I'm going to thank cheap trick for that one. though. <laughs> you bastard. I gotta do it. I love it. I love it. What's yours. I'm going to go with smells like teen spirit. I still don't think there's quite another song like it. When I first heard that song and knew what it was, I could tell why it was such a unique song that people gravitated to. I don't see it as the anthem of a generation, but that's probably because I wasn't there. But I do think it's a fantastic song, and uh, it just, that adrenaline is undeniable. And I'm not going to take anything away from it. So perhaps it's the obvious answer, but it's the one I'm going with. I was going to do this off air, but I must challenge you. And I, and I'm not asking you to think about Kurt Cobain anymore, but (laughs) I always tell everybody after listening to this early Nirvana, go and take a listen to that unplugged in New York. It is by far one of my favorite live performances of all time period. It's a great, great sound. 
And it, for me, it really showed all the, those artists in this beautiful new light. So I challenge you, if, if you, if you got a few seconds, it's a, it's a stellar album from, from front to back. I will keep that in mind. <laughs> well, I only say that not because I don't want to. I've heard it's that fantastic. It is. I am curious, and I know there's also a few covers on it, too, so I'd be curious yeah. to hear what they do there. But it's not the next album we're going to be discussing. Can you please tell our listeners what we'll be doing next? Well, I am... As soon, actually, right now, right now, I'm switching the brain over. I got a great chance to go see the Wu-Tang and Nas on the Nas New York State of Mind tour this Friday. So next weekend, we are going to bring in a guest, a friend of ours, and we are going to do Nas Illmatic. On top of that, they, I just found out that Busta Rhymes is going to be at this at this concert, too. And you're talking about three names that I, I couldn't even imagine the 90s without these three names. I couldn't imagine me as a lover of music without those three names. So to say I'm jazzed is a huge understatement. I'm doing backflips in my brain like a little kid right now. I'm about to go buy a pair of fresh butter Tims and wear a Nautica shirt. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, go, we're going all the way. I cannot wait. But yes, our next album, Nas Illmatic, one of the truly defining sounds of the 90s hip hop era. Yes, this is even more out of my comfort zone than Nirvana. I've only heard of the album and that it exists. So this will be a new one for me, but I'm looking forward to it, opening the mind up a bit to uh, another side of things. I really think, and I usually don't do this, but I, and I, I'm not trying to put anything into your head. We already spoke about it on this podcast, doing this one uh, specifically, but some other ones about how great you are and how much you love diving into lyrics. There's no way getting around these lyrics. You get to hear stories. You get to hear stories that are truly spun in a great, great way. Uh, one, one of the most profound hip hop lyricists, uh, in my opinion. So I think you're going to have a ball, even though it might not be inside your comfort zone. I really do think that, and I hope that you'll be able to really be like, Oh shit. I didn't know that this was even that legible. Um, even though he's a very, very well-spoken individual period, regardless of what he is rapping on top of. I mean, I will say this, I'm sure I'll like any of the songs on it more than I like to stay away, so. <laughs> Heard that. That's a guarantee. So we're going to have the low expectations with that and go from there. But in there addition go. to that, with this episode, we have our poll for the last episode of the month, what you want to hear us cover. Our options are The Blue Album by Weezer, Tragic Kingdom by No Doubt, the score by the Fugees and Siamese Dream by the Smashing Pumpkins. Four great ones. I'm excited to see what you guys pick on this one. Whew. Four, I can't even call them honorable mentions. I, I'm excited to do any of those. So pick away. I can't wait to see yes. what we get. I have I have a couple of preferences, but I'm not going to influence your vote. So <laughs> I'm going to stay silent on that. But in the meantime, you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it. Spotify, Apple. Amazon, we're on all of them. Also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Turntables and Tea Podcast. And until next time, when we get Illmatic, just never mind 
all the crap out there and just chill. Take care, peeps. Peace.